You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We have a really important topic to discuss today, and it has to do with relationships that other people have with themselves and with their environment. And I think many of you know that I work in the emergency department of one of America's largest HMOs, and my job there is to evaluate patients who are having a psychological crisis. And I cannot count the number of times people are brought to the emergency department by their family because they have cut or burned themselves. And the families are usually aghast when I don't put their family member on what's called a 5150. And for those of you who don't know, a 5150 refers to the California Law Code for the Temporary Involuntary Psychiatric Commitment of Individuals Who Present a larger danger to themselves or others due to signs of mental illness. So the family that I see usually tell me that the loved one is trying to commit suicide because they cut themselves. And then when I go into the emergency department room to evaluate their loved one, the patient tells me that they're not suicidal, but that they kind of burn themselves to relieve some kind of frustration. And another reason I'm given for cutting or burning is that the patient is unable to feel any emotion, so they tell me. And by self-injury, they can at least feel pain. So the question becomes, is it self-injury or is it a suicide attempt? And I know that many of our listeners might be going, oh, my God, I don't need this information. But maybe you do. Maybe this will cross your path one day and you will be able to be there in a knowledgeable, supportive way. And today, we are so fortunate to have a guest who is an expert in this area. She's an international speaker, media commentator, coach, counselor, and a five-time author, and is regarded as an authority in the treatment of non-suicidal self-injury. Our guest is a graduate of Pepperdine University, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology, with honors, I might add, and she is a summa cum laude graduate of Chapman University, where she earned a master's degree in psychology. She created Van and Associates, which is located in Louisville, Texas. Her practice specializes in coaching, counseling, and consulting. And in addition to that, listen up, listeners, Lori met and interviewed Dr. Phil. And for those of you listeners who are starstruck like I am, I'm sure our guest will tell us all about her experience because I'm going to ask her about it. So, Lori Van, it's indeed an honor to have you with us this morning, and welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been a fully licensed counselor in Texas since about 2001 and working with self-injury since about 1999, 2000, somewhere in that range. 
have done the whole outpatient clinic, nonprofits, inpatient psychiatric hospital, and then been full time in my private practice since 2008. Wow. And how did you become interested in the area of self injury? That seems like a real specialty to me. It really was just stumbling upon it when I was working on my internship hours for my full licensure. I came across a teenage girl, and this was about 99, I think is when it was, and remember thinking in my head that, wow, graduate school did not prepare me for this because this wasn't really discussed other than maybe a side note and in the context of another diagnosis. And one teenage girl became two teenage girls. And I started to research it, and at that time, came across a Lifetime movie, which feels a little cheesy to say that, <laughs> but uh, it, it was talking about self-injury. It was, I believe, co-sponsored by the Self-Abuse Family Ends Program, and realized, wow, this is actually something that's going on. I mean, if they're making a movie about this, this I've stumbled upon something. Then I worked in patient psychiatric on an adult unit and had many adults that have been self-harming in different ways and then it just has continued for the different environments that I've worked in and people started to ask me to present on it and to date I think I've given probably close to 100 different talks, presentations on the subject and it's just... It became sort of a niche thing, and I'm fascinated by it and seem to have an ability to connect with those individuals. Yes, and I see uh, self-injurious folks in the emergency department fairly often, so where it used to be a big secret, they still try to keep it a secret, but it's, it's becoming more and more common, which is concerning. And the other concerning thing is when you're cutting yourself, you could easily cut yourself in a life-threatening area. So that's something that we need to be aware of. And Lori, tell our listeners what the difference is between self-injury and suicide. It's a great question. It's a really important question because self-injury is not a suicide attempt, and I think sometimes that's the myth or misinformation that's out there. The thing that you have to look at is the intent. That's such a critical question to ask someone because if someone is self-harming, the intent isn't to die. It's to relieve their emotional pain or one of the 35 reasons that have chronicled in the caregiver's guide to self-injury versus suicide. The intent is I want to die or I'm pretty sure that I want to die. Another interesting little tidbit is that self-injury oftentimes is the precursor to a suicide attempt and also the preventative, so that if they did not self-harm, they may actually go into a suicide attempt. And there's actually a Columbia study came out about a year ago that said that you have 12 months to intervene on self-injury before it could go to a suicide attempt. I did not know that. That is kind of um, wow information. 
So, um, in your experience, educate us a little more. What are the top three reasons that people self-injure? I would say first and foremost, the absolute number one is that the emotional pain is so difficult to deal with that the physical pain or the physical release is easier to cope with. It's almost like an emotional purge in a manner of speaking. So I summarize it to say it's like a release. It's an escape. Now, people do that for many different uh, things. Some people just grab a bottle or pills as their way to do it. Some people play video games incessantly for hours on end as their escape. These individuals just happen to choose self-harm as their way to deal with whatever their emotional pain is. So that's definitely the number one. And then ones that are all pretty close in proximity would be they're stressed out, overwhelmed, anxious, somewhere along that category. Uh, they're sad, depressed, uh, maybe feel rejected, and then anger. And, and this is one that comes up with females frequently is because females are often taught that, well, if you get angry, then you're called different names, uh, very you know, condescending names. And so females have been taught a little bit more to stuff their anger versus address it. And those, I would say, are sort of your top ones. And I know I threw out four there. And as I said, there's actually 35 uh, reasons that I chronicle in a caregiver's guide to self-injury. That's the name of it? Yes, that's the first book that I actually wrote on the topic of self-harm. And, uh, yeah, you can find it on Amazon, on Kindle, on my website, the Caregiver's Guide to Self-Injury. And all, it's interesting to me that as I'm listening to you, Lori, that these all have to do with relationships. They are responses to unhappy relationships that cause emotional pain. Is that true? Well, I would say that in regards to relationships, yes, it's often the trigger that something happened with uh, an interaction, and maybe it's someone that they really, you know, knew or close to, such as a family member, maybe it's a best friend, or it's a breakup, but a lot of it comes down to boundaries, and that one of the consistent things I found with those that self-harm is that they have poor boundaries, and that more specifically, they're people pleasers. They have difficulty being assertive, speaking up, they have struggled with believing that they have a right to their opinion or to their emotions. And obviously this has some, some negative impacts on relationships. Well, that's fascinating because I, I teach about codependency at the HMO where I work, and I teach it every week. And uh, there's a lot of folks in there with a history of cutting and burning themselves, and you're exactly right, because they feel like they have to people please. They have what's called a defectiveness schema, which is sort of like, for our listeners, an underweightment that there's something wrong with me that I can't fix, so I have to earn friendships, and I have to earn love at the expense of myself. Wow. So it's really deep-seated, isn't it? It, it is, and the origins of it, I mean, could go back to childhood, most definitely, what was role-modeled 
for them. But it could also, and this is one thing, you know, Dr. Fulham, I very much agree with, the role of social media. And that, especially for the younger set, that understanding two adults get cyberbullied and adults aren't coping really well with social media either. But for young, impressionable kiddos, their ability to understand, hey, there are trolls out there. There are people that have no life. And they take all that stuff in personally, and they just they don't know how to respond. And I'm on a campaign to have parents and all of us understand the process of brain development and that children don't have the ability to discern, well, this might be dangerous and what might happen to me if I get involved with this stranger on social media and they go in full of faith with, with no wisdom. Yes, it, it's, I mean, we know neurologically the adolescent brain is not fully developed, uh, that they think more with their limbic system or with their emotional system. And so things that adults understand, because they're using a different part of their brain, they assume that there are things that, well, surely, you know, a child gets that. I mean, that's common sense. Well, for them, it's not. Now, Lori, we're going to have to take a break here for a commercial um, uh, airing. And so, listeners, we will be right back with Lori Jam talking about this very important topic. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio. We are here with Lori Dan, who is an expert on self-injury versus suicide. And I didn't mean to cut you off, Lori. Uh, is there anything else that you were wanting to say before we had to go to break about the topic? Offhand, it, I guess the one thing I would emphasize to people that have the it's not my kid syndrome is that if your kid or your loved one, because do keep in mind adults self-harm as well, as well as younger children, that even if they don't, I guarantee by the time they graduate high school or college, they will have contact with at least one, probably several people that self-harm and you're going to need to know how to respond to that because that could be their best friend that's doing it. It could be your niece. It could be your nephew. Well, that's important, and it leads back into another question I have for you, that many of the self-injury patients that I have seen have learned how to cut or burn themselves from friends or from watching a female parent engage in the behavior. And in your experience, how common is self-injury? Well, first, self-injury goes across all demographics. Sometimes people get in their mind, oh, it's just a teenage girl. And we've seen studies where self-harm starts in early childhood. The magazine The Guardian came out last year and said that they're seeing incidents in England as young as three years of age. Oh, and, of course, I mean, just heartbreaking to hear that. I've had clients that started self-harm under the age of 10, and 10 is actually one of those ages that's really pivotal because oftentimes it's not discovered until junior high, and they've already been self-harming for several years prior to being discovered, which when you go back to that Columbia study and one-year intervene, this takes on a different level of seriousness. But I've also had plenty of adults that did not start until their adult years. Mm. And economic level, it doesn't matter the economics. It doesn't matter the education. It doesn't matter what race, religion, culture. I've seen it in all of them. And statistically speaking, I mean, if you just wanted to focus in on one population of teenage girls, the stats vary anywhere from 14% up to 31%. Wow. And those who self-harm, 40%, it's estimated in the U.S., about 40% are males. So males do self-harm. And that's very interesting because I rarely see males in the emergency department who uh, do self-injury. And I think perhaps they hide their emotions in many situations better than females because the females I see who are self-injurious are crying and they've either lost a relationship or they just don't know how to feel and there's something going on at home. But you bring up another important avenue through a lens through which to look at this. I'm also curious, Lori, that over the past 20 years, have you found that the practice of self-injury is increasing or decreasing? I know you just gave us some alarming statistics, but in retrospect, what do you think? It's a great question that I often receive when I'm doing talks. It's both, actually, because 
I do think the numbers have been increasing, and we do have statistics that show it, such as the Journal of the American Medical Association said that amongst cases of females, I think is 10 to 24 years of age, going to ERs for self-harm, that's increased something to the effect of 8.4% every year from 2009 through 2015. So we do know the rates have increased without a doubt, and you talk to any school counselor and they'll say absolutely. But here's the other part is I think we're doing better with assessing because for the longest time, people never asked a question. They made assumptions. They didn't know that there's something to the effect of at least 20 different forms of self-harm. And that speaks a little bit to why maybe we're not seeing it in guys is because we're looking at it from the standpoint of just, say, on the cutting end, that guys self-harm in other ways that would not be as apparent. Could you share some of those with us? Also, for... For males, sometimes it looks as a boys will be boys type of thing where they do more dares, and maybe the dare isn't so much a a dare, but it's their cover story. It could be putting out cigarettes on their arm, and they'll say, well, it was a competition or whatnot. Um, I have an adult male in his 50s that is his way of cope. He's been putting out cigarettes on his arm just to have that sensation. But you may also have guys that pick fights. Thinking of the movie Fight Club, uh, people would ask me about that movie frequently when I spoke and finally got around to watching it. And, yes, I mean, when you have people that intentionally pick fights and then they just stand there and let the target beat out of them and they're experiencing the pain, yeah, that can be another form. Um, You know, guys may also hit themselves. They hit solid objects, Uh, things that look like, oh, well, they're just angry. Yeah, but also what's the intent behind it. Um, what about teenagers who are using drugs and alcohol to numb out? How would you categorize that? Well, there's a lot of similarities between self-injury and substance abuse. It, they're both maladaptive coping behaviors. They're both trying to deal with emotional issues. And to me, I think our society has done this disservice because In some ways, we're more accepting of substance use than we are of self-harm. But the thing is, the scars are the same. It's just some are internal versus external. I love the way you describe that. If someone is intentionally... You were going to say something else before I cut you off, and I didn't mean to cut you off. (laughs) And the part with self-injury and substance, there is a correlation there. Because if they might flip flop, listeners, that was a technical problem that we just experienced, and we are back with Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio and Lori Dan. We apologize for the technical difficulties, and before we had those, we were talking about um, Lori Dan's experience with the types of people who self harm. And Lori, could you pick up kind of where we left off in that? 
Yes, the, with self-harm, it's really, really important to understand that anyone can self-harm, that we see it in children in early, early elementary school, and then, of course, we can go into the 60s. Uh, I've had plenty of people, several cases of individuals in their 50s and 60s that self-harmed, and that uh, you know, as I said, with The Guardian, that research study that found in three-year-olds, my experiences, I've had individuals that reported self-harming when they were four, five, six years old. And it really can be uh, anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter their demographics. It really, it doesn't matter the city they're located in. I've counseled people from rural towns up to very metropolitan areas, kids that are in Title I schools to people that are donors for you know, large charities. It, it really doesn't matter. Now, that's very interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. So you've also touched on this about this is mainly cutting or burning. You said there's other ways, especially with males. Any other ways of self-injury that you've left out? Well, of the, the 20 that I've chronicled, and, and many of those are listed in the caregiver's guide, some, it, the important thing to understand is that most people don't just go right into cutting or to burning that oftentimes people will start off, especially if we're looking at tweens, that 10-year-old range, is they might start off with scratching themselves or maybe using something to rub on their skin. Maybe it's picking. And then after a period of time, they're looking for something a little bit more. Uh, and that's where they start to escalate maybe into experimenting with cutting and for some when cutting doesn't really seem to be doing it, maybe that's when they segue into burning. Uh, burning is a whole other interesting, uh, you know, side note of why people might choose to continue to do that versus some might experiment once or twice with it and then like, yeah, this isn't for me, I can't control the pain, and then they'll go to something else. Uh, that we can, people have hit themselves, they have used objects to hit themselves with. As I mentioned, they pick fights. There's self-embedding where they actually embed objects into their skin. There's piercings. So there's a there's quite the gamut. What about tattooing? <laughs> because I don't have a tattoo, but I know that so many of my patients are all tatted up. And I've asked them in the past, doesn't that hurt? And they say, well... Yeah, it kind of hurts, but uh, I kind of like it, and I'm rather addicted to it. Yes, and that's a great point because tattoos and piercings have become more socially acceptable. So it it muddies the waters a little bit, and where again you got to ask about the intent part and not make assumptions. I've had several individuals that they stopped the cutting side, but then I noticed they were getting a lot of piercings and oftentimes not professionally done. They were just piercing their bodies and I just asked them, are you doing this as a replacement for cutting? Because 
piercings are more socially acceptable and they said yeah yeah that that's actually you know what i'm doing and it's the same thing with tattoos so i actually do a differentiation in my talks but also in the caregiver's guide that gets into here are some different questions to look at and again first and foremost is intent why did you do it what was the motivation and then i'd also go to is it something that they're proud of, they want to show it off, or is it something that is more of an embarrassment, more of a shame, more of a, I, I want to cover this up, there's you know, maybe a little bit of regret to it. So, Lori, we're going to have to take a break, and listeners, we will be right back with Lori Dan on Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business professionals, business practices, and fascinating individuals to get an insider view of how America works, 10 to 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We are here with Lori Zan talking about self-injury and self-injurious behavior. Now, Lori, I don't know what it's like for you in Texas, but here in Northern California, where I work, I find that when parents discovered, discovered that their teen or their other family members engaging in self-harm, they tend to become somewhat hysterical. <laughs> And I certainly understand that, but I have to think that there might be a better way to respond. And I'd like to know what your thoughts are about it. Should a parent respond hysterically if they find out that their child is harming him or herself? Or how do you think they should respond? What would be most beneficial? Well, responding emotionally Mm -hmm. is not a good idea. Uh, It's understandable. I, I understand where a parent's coming from. It's shocking. This is your child. 
that's harming themselves. You want to do everything to stop that. What I encourage parents to do if they suspect it or if they've actually found out about it is to go to their their child or young adult and say, you know, I'm aware of this or maybe they've even told them that they're doing it. And if they know they're going to be emotional, if they they need to do their own check-in, basically, and if they know they're in that emotional frame to say, you know what, and I really want to talk with you about this, but first I need to make sure that I've collected my thoughts, that I've thought through some of maybe the questions that I might have, and I need to look at this a little bit more because when we talk, I want this to be a protective conversation. And while that might seem very awkward or forced, is a much better option to take a little bit of that time out to pause and collect yourself versus trying to proceed in an emotional state and chances are highly likely you're going to make things worse. Plus, this is also just good role modeling for that other individual to say, you know what, sometimes it's best not to proceed when you're emotional and it's better to stop and take a break and collect yourself. I think that's really good advice. And we were talking about this earlier before we came on the program live. And have you found that some people self-harm just to get attention? It's it's another good question. And oftentimes, and even with mental health professionals, I've come across where people said, well, they're just attention-seeking. I would pose this. If someone feels they have to go to that level to get attention, aren't they still worthy to get help? Because obviously that's something that's seriously messed up, that they feel like they have to do that to get any kind of attention. is a really sad statement of affairs. And let's look at them more with an understanding and caring versus a judgment. Now, the other little caveat to that is that the majority, the vast majority of people that self-harm, it's secretive. It's shameful. Why would they want to expose themselves to all that ridicule or be falsely accused of things? I love that way of looking at it, and those are really good questions for folks to ask themselves if they are indeed in some kind of relationship with someone who is doing self-harm. And speaking of that, this program is all about relationships because I believe almost every non-medical problem we have is seated in some unresolved relationship issue. Over time, Lori, what have you generally noticed about relationships uh, that people have with other people who self-injure? Oftentimes it goes back to that boundaries part that they don't see themselves as being equal, that they are somehow inferior, Uh, they don't have the same kind of rights, and that they feel they can't express their disagreement, their frustration, their sadness, their hurt, etc., with certain parties. So there's a a lack of assertiveness, and with that, you, you stuff all of those emotions, and they have to go somewhere. And they can't possibly express it to that person, so they take it out on themselves. So boundaries, it's a real big part of this. 
Yes, and I think if you're a parent listening to this, having a contract and a conversation with uh, your teens and young adults and tweeners is really, really an important thing to do. Lori, tell us the number one thing that people should not say to someone who's self-harming. Just don't do it, or a variation, <laughs> just stop it. It's well-meaning. It is. I completely understand why. You know, someone would say that. It makes sense to us. But here's the problem. Is that someone that's self-harming and they hear that, of, well, just don't do it, they're going to shut you out. Because at that moment they go, you do not understand what I'm dealing with. And if you don't understand it, why should I bother to continue to talk to you? It's true, and um, you named video games and substance use we talked about those earlier, or, or other ways of self-harm, and it's also sort of like monkey see, monkey do. If you hang around with a bunch of people who are self-harming, looks normal to you, or if your parents do that, looks normal to you, and I, I really appreciate you putting a different way of looking at self-harm for all of our listeners and for me. Do people simply outgrow their self-injury behavior or have you found that counseling is necessary? It really varies from individual. There's not a 100% way to put it. So there are some individuals that may experiment with it and they do it maybe a handful of times at best and then they go, you know, this is just not really my thing or just circumstances change and they quote unquote grow out of it. However, that's that's sort of risky. And I have parents that go, well, you know what, it's just it's a phase. What if it's not? What if this is also going back to that Columbia study with the suicide? Is this a gamble you're really willing to take? And the thing is is that I've had plenty of women, because I had started a women's self injury support group and they started when they were elementary, junior high, and they continued their self-harm into adulthood. So there's no guarantees that they're just going to grow out of it. Yes, I'm rather of the mind that there's some deeper issue in the cutting and self-injury is just the manifestation of the deeper issue. So I think that counseling and therapy and coaching could really, really help an individual who is engaging in this practice. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Because whatever led them to that behavior, it, it, it's sort of my concern with some treatment centers is they focus solely on the behavior and not the core issues. And that's such a critical part of my counseling practice or coaching practice that it's also the basis for the 90% success rate that I have with clients because we get into the core issues because if you don't resolve the core, they're just going to keep flip-flopping between behaviors. And that's exactly what we see is that, okay, great, they have sobriety here, but you didn't really deal with the core, so now they're just going to get addicted to something else or start experimenting with, you know, this other behavior. Yes, and I, uh, as you may or may not know, I think you do know, I, I work with addiction uh, in young adults and, and adults and teens. And 
my experience is many, many relatives and parents of these folks blame the addiction on the person. Like, that's just such bad behavior and you're a bad person for drinking too much or shooting up heroin. And again, that's a superficial issue. There are mm-hmm. deeper issues. And so it seems like no matter what the diagnosis, there can be a deeper issue. Like, why are you depressed? Why are you self-harming? How did you get so anxious? Were you born that way? That's my question for many people. Now, Lori, we have to take a break. Think of a, a response that you'd like to do. And listeners, we will be right back in a few minutes after this commercial break. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. If you're just tuning in, we are talking with Lori Van, who is a specialist in the area of self-injury, among other things. And I have to say, Lori, that I very much admire that you've made this one of your career focuses. And where I practice, I've not ever heard of anyone specializing in the area of self-injury, which begs the question, is every counselor or therapist able to work with this behavior? No, and it's important to understand, and when I do my trainings for counselors, I really try to emphasize this point that this is not for everyone. You have to have a comfort level. You have to have an understanding of it, and just like there are some different behaviors I'm not qualified to work with or I'm not particularly comfortable working with some of those issues, 
self-injury is the same thing. So it's not some type of weakness in the counselor. Everyone has their own interest and niche and specialties and skill set. But it's so important that if you seek a counselor, and I would be a counselor, not a coach, on this behavior because counselors are fully licensed. They've gone through graduate programs. They've gone through internships. They have the clinical background to understand the nuances of this behavior and the core issues, et cetera, that people need to interview any potential counselor and really ask them what is your experience level, as in how many cases have you treated, and what's your philosophy and what's your actual training in this? Like what kind of classes, research, et cetera, have you done to prepare yourself to work with this population? Yes, I could not agree with you more. And I'm wondering what resources would you recommend for parents? There are more out there now than there have been in the past. But, again, you want to really look at the qualifications because there are people that will write books uh, just solely based on their experiences, but there's no clinical background behind it. And it's very important to differentiate opinion and what works for this one person and their one child, understanding that does not translate to actual clinical skill, research experience, and was probably going to apply to a broader range of people. There are good books written by actual clinicians on it. Of course, I'm slightly biased uh, for the books <laughs> I've written on it. Be biased. Uh, what are the names of those? <laughs> the the first one is A Caregiver's Guide to Self-Injury was written with the thought of when a parent or someone is in that moment of, oh, crud, what do I do? that they can flip to that part in my book, be able to read it, and then move on. So often you have to read a book from one section to the next in order to get everything uh, that you need. And if someone's in crisis, they're not going to do that. So I really wrote it where you can go to that section, get your answers, and then deal with the situation. And it was also different in that, So often I see books of help your kid with cutting, and it's like, well, what about the other 19 forms of (laughs) self-harm? I mean, um, or those that use outdated terminology, we don't say self-mutilation. We haven't used that term in over 10 years. So there's those aspects. The, uh, The other books I've written are really geared for clinicians, so a practitioner's guide to the treatment of self-injury, Uh, That's sort of the the deep dive into these are some techniques, and that's what my self-injury prevention and intervention program is based upon all of the four books I've written. And the others are the workbooks uh, that accompany it or the workbooks I've developed from leading self-injury support groups for 10 years. And I think school counselors, I hope if you are listening, that you listen to the name, the titles of these books because it could very much help you and what you're doing in the schools. Now, in response to my next question, I want all of our listeners to know that all names and exact circumstances have been changed to protect confidentiality. And with that in mind, Lori, will you share with our listeners one of your most challenging cases and tell us how you led your client into recovery? 
One of them the short, was... The short, version, the short version of this, though. The, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was a female that she self-injured every single week. Oftentimes it was daily, sometimes multiple times in a day. Uh, she was also struggling with eating disordered behavior, some uh, psychosis with it, and in addition had all sorts of anxiety disorders, major depression. I mean, there was a lot going on. And there were times, honestly, that I went, oh, my gosh, is this going to get better? This is just, wow, there's so much. And very happy to say that she did end up getting her GED. She has not self-harmed in years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got engaged, got married, uh, and has just really been able to go on with her life. And it's obviously extremely, you know, gratifying whenever you see someone go from such depths of hopelessness and multiple suicide attempts to, as an adult, um, being sober from all sorts of things, too, and just and being successful. Yes, I like to sort of think of this as um, helping someone get their emotions that have been encapsulated in a glacier uh, into the melting process so that little by little they can feel an emotion and not cut or harm themselves. So with that in mind, okay, here's the question I know every listener wants me to ask you. What was it like for you to interview Dr. Phil at a private event in front of 2,500 people from over 70 countries? It was a wonderful opportunity that uh, someone that's been one of my coaches, he helped facilitate that. It was better than what I could have ever expected because of Dr. Phil's response of wanting to follow up with me in regards to the work with self-harm. But he was very personable. Uh, When I was speaking with him, he was very focused. Uh, And he also has a great sense of humor because, you know, watching him uh, at the rest of the event, he's he's quick-witted. And uh, and definitely, you know, funny, a little bit of a dry sense of, of humor, but uh, it was a joy and a pleasure to get to have that opportunity. I'll bet it was. And what was your interview about? It was in regards to self-injury and had asked him, said, you know, you've worked with a wide variety of people over the years. And, you know, he sort of nodded, and, and that was sort of funny, his response on that part. And said, so it's no surprise that there has been a dramatic increase in the cases of non-suicidal self-injury. Why do you think that is? And what do we do to start curbing the tide on this? And he really liked that question because he wasn't anticipating something of that nature. And he started to discuss his thoughts about social media and anxiety, which I was in full agreement with because I know the cases I'm working with. I know the impact that social media has had. And as he said, it's like you're getting graded every single day. Every single post that you put up there, it's like getting a grade. And unfortunately, so many people 
have low self-esteem and insecurities that if they don't get the response they want, it's just all sorts of negative consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of us who are a little starstruck, there you have it. Lori, tell us a bit about your practice. Well, I am located in the North Dallas area, but it's important to note that I travel throughout the U.S. and working on traveling internationally to educate professionals, school districts, colleges, uh, businesses on non-suicidal self-injury, appropriate protocols, things to do, not to do, and uh, that's been a big focus, but also train businesses on assertiveness and proper uh, stress management and how to keep your employees from going on short-term disability. Uh, and in addition, I do coaching sessions, uh, not just, again, on this, maybe on the self-injury side, but coaching of just like life and personal life issues. Uh, and that's also very similar on the counseling end of it. But those are sort of my focuses, doing writing, uh, the different media interviews, and then I supervise interns trying to pay it forward for the next generation of counselors. Oh, thank you. Me too. I know what that's about. How do, you, how do people get in touch with you? Probably the simplest way is through the website. It's lorivan.com, L-O-R-I-V-A-N-N. Dot com. My email is the same. It's Lori at LoriVan.com, and you can absolutely find me on social media at LoriVan, L-P-C-S. Uh, that's on Twitter. That's on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. Okay. Well, Lori, I just cannot thank you enough for being on Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio here on AmericasWebRadio.com. And I thank you for all the wonderful work you are doing for for um, the lay public and for all of us therapists. And listeners, if something is happening in your family and you don't know what to do about it, contact an expert. None of us know everything, so please don't be afraid to reach out for help. Whatever the challenge, there is some learned person out there to guide you. And until next week, this is Dr. Ann Schiebert reminding you that only you can make your life the way you want it to be. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.